If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I want you to meet Mathilde Collen, co-founder and CEO of Front, the leading customer communication platform. Mathilde founded Front in 2013 with a mission to help people everywhere work happier. She has since scaled Front to serve over 6,500 customers, including Shopify, Airbnb, and Hulu. She's raised more than $138 million in venture capital funding. Mathilde is known for her values-driven leadership style and for championing top-down radical transparency. Before founding Front, she moved to San Francisco for the Y Combinator class of 2014, she also received her master's degree at HEC School of Management in Paris. She has been recognized in Forbes' Next Billion Dollar Startups, Inc. Magazine's Female Founders Top 100, and of course, the Forbes 30 Under 30. Let's welcome Mathilde. Mathilde, first of all, I'm so excited to have you on for 10 reasons, but I want to just dive from the beginning. First things first, what is front in your own words? And walk us through the full origin story of you building the business. Sure. And Alex, I'm so happy to be here as well. So in just a few words, Front is a hub for all your customer communication. And to give you some background, when we started eight years ago, what we started with was a collaborative email client. So we went directly against Gmail, Microsoft Outlook. So you can think about it as a multiplayer version of Gmail. And I'm happy to tell you everything uh, if you want about why I started this, uh, what's the unique insight we had, et cetera. But I think after we started this, we every quarter, every year, we made the product more powerful. And that led us to becoming today this leading platform for customer communication. And so now we compete more with the Zendesk service cloud, so the customer service market. And so... If you want to try to picture what front is, we look and feel like email, which you know because you probably use it every day. But on top of this, there are lots of functionalities that you can usually find in a in a CRM, like automation, collaboration, insights, integrations, etc. And we have over sixty five hundred companies that use our product today, including Shopify, Airbnb, Mailchimp, many many others. Mathilde, can we just before we dive more into the like early story? Can you discuss a little bit of Front's ideal customer? You just said 6,500 customers, some of your biggest and best brands. What does Front do for a Shopify or an Airbnb? Walk us through what the customer experience is. So if you're a team or a company that obsesses over delivering the best customer experience you can, then that's an ideal customer. And so to give you an example, there is a company called better.com. What they do is a mortgage provider. So, you know, COVID led to so many people uh, wanted more mortgages. They use Front. And so if you, Alexa, want a mortgage tomorrow, what you're going to do is you're going to reach out to them and you're going to ask them, well, I want a mortgage. Behind the scenes, 
there are many people that will make sure that you have the mortgage. And as you can imagine, there is a ton of collaboration, coordination that's happening. So for them, they have thousands of people behind the scenes. And in order to win as a business for better, they need to give you the best answers as fast as possible. Because if you become a customer of theirs, then that's great for the business. And so what we've done is, so they, they use Front. And the consequence of them using Front is two things. On your end, so the customer, you receive the best answers as fast as possible, whatever the communication channel you're using. You want to text them, you want to email them, you want to call them, like whatever. And for them, what they tell us is that we've made them 1,200% more productive. So that led them to become the leading mortgage company, uh, whereas they were created just a few years ago. So that's one example. That's a, a wonderful example. I want to go back to the early days. So um, first of all, you're originally from France, and you came to San Francisco in 2014 to participate in, in Y Combinator. So first question is, why did you decide to participate in the program? And then tell us a little bit about those earliest days for Front. What were the biggest challenges? What scared you? How did you get the company up and running? So the early days were in France. I started the company and it was already a pretty big move for me to start a company because I graduated a year before I started the company. I had to borrow money to go to business school. And so I like it was a big move for me to quit my job after a year and start this company. I had no idea that I would come to the US. I had actually never traveled outside Europe before. So the first few month where in Paris in an office with my co-founder the, actually the office was in front of my apartment which was so wonderful and we were only doing two things which were building the product and talking to potential customers even if we didn't have a product and the way we were trying to attract potential customers leads was content and so I was writing about the future of email or like our journey and the thing I realized was most people that were interested or that were signing up to our product were from the US. And so I traveled to San Francisco a few months after I started. And when I was there, it was so wonderful to be able to talk to people that either were starting to use the product or interested in, in the product. I loved my time there. I realized that probably the company could be more successful faster if I was in the US. And then I, I needed to find a good way to go there because as you can imagine, when you're French, it's not easy to have a visa and, and come and have your entire company in San Francisco. And so Y Combinator was a way for us to come to the US. One of the things I've learned about you that I absolutely love and I think makes a phenomenal CEO is you have made the point many times publicly about the importance of concentrating on a single metric. What is the most important metric in the early days and then now today? And then how do you focus your team around that metric? How do you get everybody aligned to obsessing over one thing? So what was the early day metric? And then what's the metric today that you get everybody to rally behind? So it's the same, so that's easy. Uh, for us, it's annual recurring revenue. And I think there is a question that you've not asked, which is how you get people excited about recurring revenue. Because what I've found is, there are, like when you're doing a SaaS business, there are a few metrics you could pick. You could pick revenue, you could pick number of users. They have pros and cons. I think the reason why we picked revenue is because I feel like revenue doesn't lie. It's like, it's, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if people get value out of your product, then uh, they pay for it and they're happy to pay more. The thing is, so how do I make sure that people rally behind it? 
I think there is a ton of discipline around communication of what our goals are, how we're tracking against our goals, why our goals are these ways. So like if you're an employee at front, you can probably say very quickly, our AR today, what's our goal this quarter, etc. Now the question is, how do you get people excited about this? Because in, you know, just revenue isn't excited per se, like it's always more exciting and inspiring to think about the users behind your product. And so you need to be very deliberate when you've picked a metric like revenue to put the customer and the end users at the heart of your business and at the heart of how you communicate because Otherwise, I think there is a risk that your company isn't as inspired. So the good thing about having revenue is your team is super focused and that's great. Uh, the thing you need to be careful about is making sure that they're also energized. Let's talk a little bit about culture. I feel like you have, as a CEO, as a leader, you've done a lot. You now have you know, north of 250 employees. You've done a lot of, around culture. What are the things that you swear by, by culture? What are anything that's unique to you and how you think about things, Mathilde, around culture? So I would pick two things. And of course, it's hard to describe your culture in like two words, but I'll pick the two that I think are the most unique or I think we're the most deliberate about. The first one is low ego. So two of our values are low ego and high standards. And when people join Front and we ask them, what do you think is most unique about our culture? Usually they say, well, you have really talented people, but all of them are very low ego. I care a lot about it because I just feel like even if you're good at your job, even if you have a ton of experience, there are always so many things that you don't know. And just in general, you know, being driven by ego doesn't lead to, I think, the most constructive or proactive you can be. So there are a lot of things at France that we do in order to either assess candidates and make sure that they are low ego because it's a, it's a hard thing to assess during an interview process and then making sure that people understand what low ego means. So for example, uh, we have weekly all hands and you have a, a part of it that stumble of the week where if you've made like, for example, Alex, you work at front and you've made a mistake last week and you've learned from it. So you're going to talk about it. And that shows that we're a company that is totally fine with people acknowledging mistakes. And, you know, I, like I, I'm always very happy to tell them I screwed up on this, but I learned this and overall I'm happy that I screwed up on this. So I think low ego would be number one. And this is just one example of how we live it. Second one would be transparency. It's a topic I could talk about for an hour. So I'll just share one thing, which is as the company grows, transparency needs to evolve. And so transparency doesn't mean for us, we share everything and anything. We, the way I talk about it is there is good and bad transparency. Good transparency is going to answer questions and create trust. And bad transparency is going to raise more questions than it's going to answer questions. And if you use that, then you can be pretty transparent without saying, I'm just going to share everything. And so maybe a, an example of transparency would be bad transparency for us. Again, doesn't apply to everyone. We don't share salaries publicly because I think it's going to raise more questions. People are very sensitive to this topic. However, we share every board deck that every quarter we have a board meeting and that way people know everything about the business. I want to just spend a little bit more time on the category that you're innovating in. You're building a product that strives to create better customer communication. I want to just quickly step back. And if you fast forward five years, 10 years, you're sitting staring at the future of how all companies will communicate with their customers. If you had to make one or two predictions, one or two bets of just where the world is going, that front is trying to lead the charge on, 
what is the world going to look like for customer communication in five years and 10 years? What's obvious to you that maybe isn't obvious to everybody that's listening right now? So I will share two insights that I believe are true. One about communication in general and one about customer communication. I'll start with the broader one, which is communication. One of the things that I'm convinced about is that asynchronous communication is going to become more and more important. So you can think of synchronous communication as a tool like Slack, for example, where like I send you a message and the expectation is that you reply right away. So in a way, you're at the mercy of whoever sends you a message. And I do believe that with everything that happened during COVID, where I think people were more burnt out than before with more application and softwares that try to capture your attention with more awareness about the fact that constant notifications are not good for your focus and your well-being, I believe that asynchronous communication is going to become more and more important. Uh, and email is a form of asynchronous communication. And obviously, I don't believe that email is dead. We can come back to this. Now, on customer communication, um, one of my biggest beliefs, which might be counterintuitive, is that it's going to be the best way for companies to differentiate. Because if you think about any company, eventually, whatever product you create, it's going to be commoditized. That's the beauty of technology. It's like somebody will be able to do it like pretty much as well as you a few years from now. And there are already lots of industries where products are commoditized. And so I was talking about mortgages before, or you can think about logistics, which is in a vertical where front is successful. The, the products are commoditized. Therefore, the companies need to come to differentiate on customer communication. And so if they win there, then they win as a business. And so my belief is that every company eventually will have to deliver insanely good customer communication and differentiate through this. And so any software that allows them to have personal communication, fast communication, accurate communication is going to be successful. As you think about companies that you look up to on customer communication, is there anybody that you admire? MailChimp is always a company that I've admired for so many reasons. And one of them being that I've always felt like they treated their customers incredibly well. You know, an example of this would be they have a ton of small customers during COVID, small customers had a hard time paying and they launched a, a program at scale to help every small customer still uh, be able to use MailChimp. That's one example. More recently, I feel like Zoom is also a company that has talked a lot about making their, their customers happy and never increasing prices, even if you know they could and, and customers were willing to pay for it. So I'd say MailChimp and Zoom. I love it. Um, I want to switch gears a bit here. One of the things that you did early in 2018, you acquired a calendar scheduling platform called Meeting Bird. Obviously, making an acquisition in the early days of your business can be really daunting and it can wreak havoc on businesses. Talk about how you manage that acquisition successfully so that it actually became an amplifier for what you were building. It's a great question. So, and, and I do believe that this acquisition has been super successful. I think many things come to mind. The first one is one of the things that's really impacted me early on and that I would recommend you know, and every entrepreneur do is 
I met someone, and it can be multiple people, that gave me the ambition that I needed to make France successful. And, you know, if you had told me in 2014, when I arrived in the US, like four years from now, you're going to acquire a company, I would have said, Alex, no way. Like, you know, first, if I could have a, an up and running company in four years, that would be wonderful. And, and, and the person I met was Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, who was at, at that time already, like Stripe was a company I was looking up to. And the fact that he told me, I think Fran is great. I think you're great. You're going to you know, be successful. I was like, that, that had a huge impact because my self-confidence wasn't necessarily very high. Uh, and having someone believe in me then led to a ton of moves later on and, and doing an acquisition pretty early on was one of the things that I would have never imagined I would have done. Number two is being focused during this acquisition was important. The company is probably not going to die if you don't make the acquisition. And so we had a, a process where we made sure that we were spending enough resources to ensure it was a good fit. And from the beginning, I was convinced that it was great for them and great for us. That would be my best advice is like, if you're not convinced about this, then ultimately the company is going to join and realize that it wasn't good. And so it would be a short-term optimization to have them join. And so I think that's the thing we did really well was ensuring during the time we had with them that it was good for them and for us. Uh, and sometimes I feel like you forget whether it's good for them and you think about you. And the, the last thing I would say is, although it seems like a, an impressive thing to do and a, like, of course, it's not easy, but I also feel like, like, everything I do in my job is hard because everything I do is new uh, and I need to reinvent myself pretty much every six months, I'd say. And so, you know, like a topic like I need to make sure that my executive team work well together can seem less daunting from the outside. It's actually equally hard. And so that that's the what I signed up for and what I'm very happy to do. But this is constant learning and, and definitely this acquisition was um, was a learning process as well. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. You've raised almost $140 million. You've had a lot of unique approaches, but one of the things I, I want to talk about two topics on fundraising. One, you've always made your fundraising decks completely public. You've literally shared them to anybody online. Talk a little bit about your logic in doing that and why you did it. The reason is super simple. When I was raising our Series A, our seed was a bit unconventional because we were in Y Combinator and so we were lucky enough to have good traction and so seed was easy and I didn't, uh, during my seed round, I didn't experience what I experienced during our Series A, which was, okay, I need to build a deck. I know that it's our Series A, so the deck needs to be good. I'm going to look online and see a few decks and I'm going to be inspired by them and that's how I'm going to build my Series A deck. And I couldn't find anything good. And so the reality is... I published our Series A deck just because I couldn't find anything online that helped me. And I just wanted to help in return. And just in general, I'm 
extremely grateful for a ton of things that happened to me in life and professionally and personally. And so giving back is something that I care about and definitely publishing the deck was because I wanted to give back. Now, I didn't expect that our Series A deck would be seen millions of times. And so then it was a pretty easy decision to publish our Series B and our Series C deck. The thing I did was not only sharing the deck, but also sharing you know, what went well during the fundraising process, what didn't go well, so that when seeing the deck, they can see also things that can be improved and things that were particularly compelling for investors. Last thing that I love about you, and it's something I share deeply believe in at Inspired Capital, we tell founders this almost every day, Um, But when it comes to fundraising, you said it's not obviously most important to take the highest valuation, but to truly optimize for the best partner. In your own words, how do you know when someone's the best partner? How how do you process that decision? So I think you need to be very honest with yourself about what you're looking for. And there is no answer I could give saying like the best investor is XYZ. I'll, I'll tell you how I thought about it. So I can tell you, for example, how I thought about it during our seed round and our series B. During our seed round, it was the very early days of France. I was putting a ton of pressure on myself and I was you know, in a new environment because I was in the US. I, we just went through YC and we, we were doing relatively well. So I felt like we had some pressure on our shoulders. And what I optimized for was I wanted people that I knew believed in me and wouldn't put too much pressure on myself. I was like, I'm putting enough pressure on myself. I don't need someone else to do that. As, so that was during our seed run. And so we ended up raising with, we didn't have anyone joining our board. We had a lot of angel investors join the round. During our series B, however, I thought, well, I'm tired of everyone telling me, you're doing a good job. I feel like it's the first time I'm doing this job. There are necessarily a lot of things I don't know. And I want someone to actually push me. And of course, the basics need to be uh, that I'm convinced they care about me because otherwise I don't want to be pushed by someone that I don't also care about and there is no trust. So for me, what was best uh, was someone that I believe cared about me and someone that would set super high expectations and push me. And Brian Schreier from Sequoia is the person that joined our board and I never regret it. I'm so happy that we chose him uh, because I felt like he was that person for me. Now, it doesn't mean that that's what every entrepreneur needs. I think the first step is to be very introspective and really think about what you need as an individual, what your business needs. It could be, you know, a killer recruiting team in a firm. It could be uh, lots of interest to potential customers. It could be a a person that is going to be a cheerleader. It could be someone that is going to push you so hard, uh, but at least be honest with yourself. I want to transition a little bit to, to, to all things about you. First of all, you are clearly disciplined. You grew up in France, came to the United States. You're ambitious. What do you think your parents did that was special to helping grow such a wonderful human? It's a good question. I'm, I'm with my parents right now, and I've been thinking about it. The truth is, if I'm the most honest, like, like the, the thing they did, which helped me so much, is they loved me unconditionally. And like I've been raised in a family where there was so much love, and I think that contributed to me caring about human beings, creating an environment where people are happy to come to work every day, etc. So I, they did that. That was wonderful and the best gift they could make. But I also think that I was very lucky from the moment I was born. And I've always, when I said like you know I care about giving back. I've always found it unfair that school was always easy for me. Making friends was always easy for me. And then I had 
uh, siblings and it wasn't as easy for them. And, you know, I was in the same school and I've always felt like there is nothing that I did or that my parents did differently. And yet life is way harder because you're supposed to be good at school. And, you know, if not, it's, it's, it's a bit harder to, to build your confidence as a kid. So, you know, I like, I want to be humble here and say like, I, you know, of course they love me and that was wonderful, but I also, I'm just grateful for how I was born and life is unfair. And this is why I'm trying to give back. Mathilde, one of the other things you're known for is being extremely disciplined. You're extremely disciplined about your time. Share a little bit of your habits or your rituals or your time discipline that you can pay it forward to everyone that's listening. Because Lord knows sitting here, I'm very disciplined about my time as well as a mother of three and a full-time working mom. But I want to know your tricks. Well, first, I have so much admiration for, uh, I only have one kid. So having three sims, amazing. I would share, of course, they're, I'm super disciplined. Like sometimes people think I'm a robot and not a real person, especially because at front so many people have not met me. So I'll share just a few. The first one is I make sure that when I'm working, I'm working. And when I'm not working, I'm not working. And so one thing I do is I have no work application on my phone. And also when I'm done working, which on my calendar is always written, like, for example, on Monday, I'm going to start stop working at 6 p.m., then I close all my work application and on my phone, I don't have anything. So I don't have a way to work because I think when you care about your job and you like your job, uh, it's actually pretty rewarding and to just go check your emails and see what's in there. And so I just create uh, boundaries that way. So that's one thing. The other thing is I'm super deliberate about how I spend my time. At the beginning of every week, like literally every Monday morning, I think about my goals for the week and I send them to a few people in my team so that I'm hold accountable to them. And I make sure that I have blocks of time to work on them in the same vein of being very deliberate with my time and being crazy with my calendar. Everything is in my calendar. Like if I, you know, I have a block of time to check my emails, it's my calendar. If I have lunch, it's my calendar. I make sure that during COVID I had one hour of lunch break every day because I found it very hard to be back to back on Zoom every day from my place. One of the things I do is I group meetings. So I have entire uh, half days that are no meetings because I hate having one meeting and then 30 minutes of free time and then a meeting. It's it's very hard for my brain to do anything productive. Yeah, this is just uh, just a few examples, but happy to share a million more. <laughs> I want to discuss, you grew up in France. You obviously moved to the United States to come and build front. There's such big cultural differences between the United States and France. And obviously in in France, work does not define you. Um, And I think in the United States, work is a big part of our culture for better or for worse. Talk a little bit about how your roots have actually made you a better CEO or what you get to bring to front on the cultural front, just given that you are in fact blessed with a, a really different culture um, that I happen, I confess to, to, to Mathilde at the beginning, I'm a complete Francophile and I, I speak really bad French, but um, no, I, I, I love that you, you got to bring something different to your CEO's seat. So how do you think about that? Well, I definitely think about it as a blessing. Like I'm, in, in my personal life and in my professional life, I think it's so great to be able to be in two cultures. And I, I grew up in France and then I've spent seven years in the U.S. And, and I do believe that our culture at France is a reflection of, you know, half French, half American. 
And then, of course, there are, you know, now many other people, but at the very beginning, it was like a group of French people in the US and that defined who we were. I would say that the way I would describe it is not necessarily our relationship to work, because I think our relationship to work is a different topic. And I care a lot about people having boundaries. And so maybe that's my French roots. Maybe I I thought it was just me as a person. I, I never thought about it. So thank you for highlighting this. I I think that um, what's unique is the combination of being very direct and down to earth, which is, I think, a very French thing, and being highly ambitious, which is a very American thing. Like, I'm always, um, like, you know, when I was uh, doing my interview for YC, one of the questions was, how are you going to become a billion dollar company? And I was amazed at how my other peers who were American could say so naturally, obviously this company is going to be a billion dollar company and me inside I was struggling I was like well let me have a good argument and so I think this natural ambition is something that we learned and I think the down-to-earth very direct is something that we gave and that has been a in my opinion a wonderful balance. I love how well you answer that question. I want to quickly end on one question. You're a regular meditator And I'd love just to get a sense of not only what do you get out of meditating, and if you want to pay it forward to everybody, just give us a sense of why that's been so valuable to to your career. The biggest, I think, misunderstanding about meditation, at least that was what I thought before doing it, is that you're going to meditate and you're going to be put in a mindset that's peaceful and you're going to feel the value of meditation by meditating. And so, you know, most people that I know give up after a few times trying it because they're like, I'm pretty bored, you know, which is normal when I meditate and I don't see the value. And and the thing I, so I've been meditating every day for the past four and a half years. And the thing I've realized is that it's like a muscle you train. Uh, as, like, when you go running for the first few times, pr- probably you hate it as well. And it's only after a few weeks or months that you can see the benefit. And it's exactly the same, just like your brain is trained. And I use a, an app called Headspace, and I, I don't see a better way to describe what it does to me than giving me the Headspace. Um, so basically, my job, as you know, as you said it, is solving problems all the time. And every single day I have things that have happened to me and they're annoying to me because I care and I would want everything to go right. And if I have the headspace to think, well, this is a problem to solve. I'm not upset. I'm not emotionally unhappy. Like that's hugely beneficial to me as a human being. And then I become a better CEO because like if I'm unhappy every single day, I can't be the best version of myself. And then my personal life, I think this headspace means that you know, when I'm going to the beach with my daughter, because I'm in Brittany right now, like I'm fully in the moment. And one of the things I'm convinced about, and I would have never said this a few years ago, is that like the mo- like the most happy you can be as a human being is to really enjoy the present moment. It's easy to say, but incredibly hard to do. And I've not found a better tool than meditation to learn how to live in the moment. Mathilde, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about Front, check out front.com. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Mathilde, not only are we rooting for you, congratulations on your sweet little girl, Anna. Um, And thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. Alex, it was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much.